Thank you for joining us today at Elemental Collision. My name is Dave Graham. Today we're joined by Martin SFP Bryant of Big Revolution, and we're here to talk about curation and cultivation. Let's join the conversation. All right, everyone, uh, welcome to another recording of Elemental Collision. I am joined today by the esteemable Martin SFP Bryant, and we're going to talk about that in just a second because I swear to God you couldn't make this up if you tried. Um, <laughs> Again, in the happenstance of the greater LinkedIn slash Twitterverse, I, I end up running across the most interesting people in the world. So Martin popped into my feed one day based on some of the media stuff that he was doing. And we have some associations in common, um, Naomi Timperley, uh, Pete Mills, <laughs> Vikash, uh, Vikas, sorry, Vikas Ja. And you know, it's always exciting to be able to bring you to my admittedly small audience but they're very loyal. I think it constitutes my brother at this point. So we're, we're all good. Um, so by way of introduction, Martin, let's, let's unpack who you are and, and go from there and yeah, touch on the SFP part, if you will. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, my background is I was a tech journalist. I uh, was uh, the editor in chief of a site called The Next Web and uh, really kind of threw my life into writing about tech and thinking about tech constantly. But I kind of burned out with being a journalist. You know, it's something you can do for a while. And then, you know, I felt like I really need to do something different. So uh, nowadays I work more directly with tech companies um, on things like their, their messaging and their communication. So bits of PR, but uh, also kind of the way they communicate with investors and people like that. And, uh, but I've never really got the journalism bug out of my head. So I also do things like like uh, a newsletter six days a week um, and a uh, I've recently started a YouTube channel and um, so they're just ways of kind of keeping myself kind of tuned into the tech world and all of that uh, but the SFP thing really came about because uh, back in 1996 I was lying in bed at my dad's house trying to drift off to sleep it was one o'clock in the morning or something I was listening to the radio and uh, I used to listen to the radio very late at night at that time and the news came on on the hour and it said that someone called Martin Bryant had uh, committed a mass murder in Australia and I was like Hang on a second. They said Martin <laughs> Bryant. So because this was 1998 and we, no, 1996, sorry. And the internet, well, I could hardly pick up a smartphone and check. And uh, we didn't even have dial up in the house at the time. I, um, I had to wait an hour for the, for the time to go, you know, for the news to come around again on the yeah. radio and then heard it again, Martin Bryant. Oh no. And so for years, I lived with this guy, you know, Australia's most notorious mass murderer uh, <laughs> as my namesake. And it wasn't really a problem, but then uh, I, occasionally people would kind of email my bosses and say, do you know you've hired a mass murderer? And then I get some very strange um, messages from my bosses, but, uh, but uh, you know, it was fine. It was easily explainable. But then more recently, uh, when I've been doing things for myself and you yeah. know, I started this company, Big Revolution, and uh, people were then Googling me to find out who I was a lot more, um, I found that, you know, people were put off by this big knowledge panel at the side with this with, with this Australian guy kind of staring back at them and all this stuff about how many people he killed and things and uh, you know very tragic and, and you know, yeah. a horrible horrible story Absolutely. but uh, but but just you know very bad for me as well in terms of my personal branding and um, very difficult uh, for me to uh, to get around um, and uh, so I decided as a search engine hack I would. Um, 
changed my name to Martin SFP Bryant uh, professionally. This was only like last year. And um, uh, it, it worked because my Twitter handle is SFP, Martin SFP, uh, because I used to make music under the name The Starfighter Pilot. Um, and, and so, but because I already had social media profiles tied to that name, it instantly made me Martin SFP Brian everywhere. And suddenly I was very Googleable. So, uh, so it means I have to kind of insist on this uh, very silly <laughs> acronym in the middle of my name, but it, it, it does work and it keeps, uh, keeps uh, my uh, namesake at bay. Well, there, I mean, I, I mean, I'm almost speechless because you know, <laughs> my name, I, I'm either a Welsh rock climber. I think is the first guy that has historically come up or you find me about below the fold, you know, it's just it's one of those things. So yeah, I, I would not exchange my notoriety on Google for, for, well, for Martin Bryant's notoriety at this point. <laughs> I appreciate the context there because that, that's pretty interesting. Now I ask everybody that comes on here by way of uh, introduction to, to everything, uh, obviously your background, but Tell us a little bit about what community means to you. You've obviously worked across a lot of different kind of areas and technology and whatnot. So what does community look like to you? What does it mean to you? So for community, for me, I think the most important part of community is curation and cultivation. Um, I think uh, it's very easy to bring people together around a particular topic and uh, to uh, or a shared interest or a shared worldview. But if we're talking about online community, particularly, it's very easy for things to go off the rails with spam and in this increasingly polarized world, political talk that leads into dark places and you know arguments that take yeah, take everything off the rails and uh, and re reduce the quality of that community. So, what I found increasingly in recent years is, you know, when I'm kind of adminning a, a Facebook group or looking after any kind of community, it's really that constant sense of responsibility um, for curating a quality experience that means that everyone involved gets value out of being part of that community. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't join these things if we didn't feel like there was some value. I mean, sometimes it's a perceived value, right? I joined <laughs> LinkedIn because the perceived value there is uh, people can look at me, look at my profile as a CV, or they can look at my Twitter handle, they can understand this is Dave Graham or whatever. But the actual extracted value, like you're saying, is curation. We spend time kind of developing our network. We don't accept everybody that comes in the door. We don't uh, follow everybody on Twitter, right? We spend time curating and qualifying mm you know, who we want to surround ourselves with either virtually or in, or in, or in person, right? There's differing dynamics to that these days for sure. So I, I appreciate the context on that. Now, going back to the SFP part, <laughs> well, what, what was the, what was the, you said you did music. Now this is intriguing yeah. to me. So what was the, <laughs> what was the genesis of that? Uh, well, I've always had songs in my head. Like uh, I've always Kind of ever since I was I probably, uh, probably since I was about four or something, I can remember making up songs and singing them at school. And uh, so I I always had songs in my head that I was I was making up. And then I found as I got into my twenties, I really had to record these songs because otherwise they'd stick in my head and loop in my head forever. And so I started making electronic pop um, under nice. the name The Starfighter Pilot because I'd been in uh, a band when I was a teenager and it was fine. But I always uh, I've always found although I work fine in a team and I, you know I, I enjoy the camaraderie of being in a team or in a band or whatever i enjoy or i i 
feel more at home and more comfortable working alone in a lot of ways. And so I, I became a solo artist essentially. And uh, by, you know, by this point, it was very easy to do that with a computer, uh, a keyboard, you know, software instruments and things. And uh, you know, I've got some hardware as well. You know, so it's a bit more satisfying to tweak real knobs on instruments and things, you know, <laughs> if you talk about synthesizers and things. Uh, so, um, so, so yeah, I, I played a lot live, uh, mainly around the Manchester area, but also other parts of the UK. Um, had uh, an EP out that had a, a, a couple of decent reviews and a um, couple of vinyl releases and things. Uh, it never became a big thing, but um, uh, it was a big part of my identity for, uh, say, five years or so. And I still come back to it every now and then. I still get the bug, um, uh, although it's increasingly difficult to do. And one one reason I started the YouTube channel was um, I felt I needed that kind of creative outlet um, doing producing something that then goes out to an audience um and and although i do writing and in the newsletter and things um it's it becomes kind of boring after a while you know i, I still do it because I, I still find it satisfying but it it doesn't stretch me at all so do it going to video is uh is kind of giving me something new to work on now um that kind of has replaced the music in that respect i think yeah and it's i get the uh you know i play guitar you know i Play, learned how to play piano at a young age, and then went to trumpet. I think was yeah, trumpet. <laughs> was a whole night, you know. I love the simplification. Now it's three valves versus you know a whole bunch of keys, right? Um, mm. You know, and guitar. You know, very very mechanical. I think everybody in my family at one point played some sort of instrument, right? So I was surrounded by it from from an early yeah. age. But yeah, that urge to create that that kind of you know feeling that you have to get it out. I I can yeah. I, yeah, my problem though is that my coordination, my physical coordination, is terrible. So I can't play guitar because right. um, uh, if I'm focusing on one hand, I can't focus on the other hand. I just can't do it. Right. And I imagine if I practiced enough, eight hours a day for a year, I'd probably be fine. But you know, I I don't have the uh, kind of uh, sense of uh, commitment, I suppose, to uh, to put that much time into something like that. Um, so I, I find that using computers and synthesizers, um, and I can, you know, I, I'm not the world's most accomplished, accomplished keyboard player, but I can play keys well enough to, uh, you know, put music in and to perform with some kind of expression to a certain degree. So that's good enough. Um, but, uh, but yeah, uh, it was only really when computers became good enough to be able to, uh, take what's in your head and turn it into into something that uh, is listenable and interesting and of a high quality that uh, i really found a proper outlet for for all of that yeah i think we've seen that kind of in the emergence of you know so again youtube channels and then people are kind of stepping into video i never wanted to mess with video at all ever i always <laughs> found it fascinatingly complex you know the concept of non-linear video editing was like to me i don't want to deal <laughs> with this you know like uh, now i got to manipulate time space everything together and figure out how to pull <laughs> these pieces apart and you know i step into something that's arguably not the simplest right it's not iMovie or or whatever you know da vinci is still pretty complicated but i've appreciated going to youtube and being like all right so i need to create a logo <laughs> i need to do this and you know having somebody walk through and taking that modality it's easy for me because i'm a visual learner right i need that kind of learn by example, see somebody else do it. And then I can follow in their footsteps and kind of make it my own kind of concept. So, you know, it's always been that thing, you know, and I'm, I tend to be like a very analog kind of guy. So kind of stepping into this digital thing and <laughs> mucking around, you know, has always been, has been a challenge. And so, you know, I like the knobs on my mixing board. Yeah. 
there's less knobs. At least there's faders. I had to have something with faders, you know. Right. Um, yeah. So it makes me feel like I'm back into into music and doing it. I actually had a, a conversation yesterday with I think he's the CEO of um, a microphone company. He's just, he sent me a cell phone number. He's like, yeah, let's have a conversation. And we were talking about, you know, these type of things. And he's like, oh, you know, you use warm audio. That's great. And he sat there and like, literally it was a, it was a mind blowing conversation. Cause here's some guy that's super passionate about the idea of audio, you know, and the, the diaphragms that are in these microphones and how they're created. And, you know, it's such an analog feel to something that's so digital and overly produced you know so I, it's always these kind of interesting collisions with the people that you meet um yeah. and so yeah so i really appreciate context on that how would you say that your uh, your journey into the creative space whether that be through writing or through music or any other modality that you've done how, how would you say that was encouraged as you were growing up um i mean i, I suppose my parents wanted me to be creative you know I, I, my my mum was a piano teacher so uh she she was t giving me piano lessons although again that commitment issue came in where you know i was seven years old learning piano and <laughs> i just didn't want to you know i'd sit down for the lesson but then i didn't want to then go to we had a piano in the house but i didn't want to sit down uh you know for hours every week and learn to play the piano properly um if, if it was good enough to bash out a tune that's fine but uh you know i never became good enough to get you know certificates or whatever it is um, sure. that, uh, that piano players get when they're when they're uh, starting to learn um and uh you know they encouraged me to do acting and so i used to um uh, be uh, you know into kind of amateur drama uh, out of school um and uh, uh plays and all that kind of thing so uh it went to a a drama festival in eastern or G former eastern germany um uh, only a couple of years after after the berlin wall fell actually mm. um uh so that was an interesting experience um but uh, but yeah so i suppose i was always encouraged to be creative um but i think more more than that i think i've just got a brain where i have to be um mm. and uh you know it is just leave me without a focus for a few minutes and i'll start spewing out random <laughs> stuff out of my head that you know like a story or you know like just a poem or or something will just come out of my head and it won't necessarily be any good but uh you know it's it's frustrating actually when you you kind of just making breakfast or something and you, a song comes into your head and you go, and you, you, you kind of sing it to yourself and you go, that's actually quite good and then by the by the time you've started work or have you forgotten it and um yeah. and, you, and also you realize that actually it would take a whole day of sitting down and recording and uh, get, getting it together to actually turn it into something that um, you'd want to share with anyone so these ideas just disappear but uh but yeah i suppose creativity is just kind of in there luckily so uh yeah. so yeah I, I i harness it whenever i can <laughs> oh no i hear you on that one i take walks every day and so one of the things is yeah you're walking along and see there's a white noise of the physical activity or the walking and you kind of sit there and you're like oh this this is really great you know you have your cell phone you start using the audio notes on on the cell phone to kind of record down some of these things and be like oh, yeah i could actually record an entire podcast probably walking though it would sound like i'm <laughs> <laughs> probably would be distracting at a certain point there's a raw authenticity about that i think um <laughs> the, the, the comedian uh, richard herring does a podcast where he takes his dog for a walk every day and he he clears stones in the field next to his house and it's uh you know like a, I, i've only kind of watched one or two of them but um but uh, i think it's more of a kind of a, a, a it's an outlet for him he's, he's not trying to make anything big out of that particular endeavor it's just something to, it's a way of being creative and uh kind of sat 
satisfying an itch uh, within a seemingly tedious way, um, like a stone clearing podcast. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's, it's something that's kind of tedious, but it's just something kind of fun to kind of keep that creative flow going, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, you, you got to use what you've been given. You know, I got bored this year and I put up a wall in my apartment. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think I, I'm not going to tell my apartment complex and management company that I did that because I'm going to lose my security <laughs> deposit. But where you know. did that come from? I don't know. Well, it's decorative. <laughs> I mean, come on now. <laughs> it adds a certain, uh, you know, certain feel to the place, ambiance. Mm. If you will. <laughs> I don't think they would see it that way. They're like, well, I, it's one less wall you have to paint. I mean, when I, you know, <laughs> never mind the carpet and the nails that are anyway. So when you go approach clients and, you know, kind of shifting, taking that creative process that, that you find, you know, your brain's going 15,000, you know, in a neurodiverse way, because that tends to be a buzzword right now in that kind of neurodiversity that you have and how you take all these different thoughts and these different trains. And how do you translate it to a client? How do you walk into a company and, you know, help them see the different angles, approaches that they can do through their messaging or through their marketing or through any of their kind of various modalities of what they want to do. Honestly, a lot of the time, it's simply about translating what they say into plain English. It's often simple as that. Um, you know, I, I work with um, uh, a lot of companies that tend to do very technical things, um, mm. uh, you know, maybe biotech so you know working you know innovating in uh chemistry labs and um related to medical technology and things and uh, they're often run by very scientifically minded people who are great at innovating in that space but uh they don't necessarily um know how to translate that just into a way that a, a normal person would understand. And often, even if they're trying to just raise investment, the investors are often normal people who uh, who don't necessarily have a specific specialism in that field. They become experts enough in that field in order, in order to invest in it. Um, and so they tend to be quite generalist and, and just curious, interested people. Mm -hmm. But you still have to communicate them with, uh, communicate with them in a way that uh, is just, plain speaking so often it's a case of they'll say blah 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 blah, and then i'll go so what you're saying is and it's just i suppose a um a sentence and i got this through um being a tech journalist where it was similar you know you're writing about a tech startup and uh, they do something interesting and you can't just use the marketing language they use to describe no. what they do you have to translate that into something that's a bit more uh uh, remote and detached and is viewing it from a you know an external view and taking a, a, a an assessment of its positive and negative points um so i might you know take a a startup that does whatever it is and then turn that into a snappy analogy for what they do sure. and um i used to find that some uh, some startups would then say oh thank you for that um for that description you gave us uh, we've actually started using that in our in investment pitching slides and i'm um, like oh okay or in our sales marketing slides or whatever and i'm like yeah. okay oh, that's interesting and so uh, that when i was kind of thinking well what am i going to do after journalism that kind of area of work kind of came into my mind uh, as um, as something that um, that would be a good starting point and uh, finding the right way to do that because there's not a massive market out there for people who are at a point where they're trying to put together their their positioning in the market and their messaging um, but also their 
they're too small to have a in-house marketing person sure. um, or an in-house PR person. And so, uh, and also that they're willing to spend money on it. So finding those people, you know, there's, there's not a lot of them. So, um, uh, or a lot that I've found so far, but enough to make it interesting, which is yeah. good. Um, but then uh, that means as well, I, I also do work around PR. So taking their story and uh, turning it into something that will be interesting for journalists. And um, no, a lot of that is, um, well, it, there's a creative element to it. A lot of it is quite um, almost formulaic in that mm -hmm. you know how you have to know how to formulate a story in a way that will be easily digestible by a journalist so you know uh, thinking of a press release as more a technical document than than anything else and yeah. just knowing what to put in there and what will grab a a, a journalist's interest so uh, so yes it, it's it, it's interesting but it, it's based on kind of just a certain way of thinking about technology and communication yeah we uh we definitely holding this up you know, it's a terrible photocopy and i've scribbled all over it but you know we call this a message house right internally and we use this at, right. at, at my day job which is yeah. completely divorced from what i'm doing here by way of this <laughs> <laughs> but you know arguably the simplicity thing I, I think you know a couple of different themes that you have in there right it's it's restating the problem in a way that's comprehensible Right. You, know, mm. like, you and I can talk at a technical level. You and I can talk at these these deep marketing levels, if that truly is a thing. Um, but somebody that's trying to explain, I had this explained to me this morning by someone who was relayed on a call this morning where, you know, if, you're, if your parent can understand it in this case, if your mom can understand what you do, you know, you've reached that level of pure communication. You figured that yeah. one out because a lot, you know, I'm, my mom doesn't, I still don't know what I do got to be honest, you know, for the most part, but I know that part of what I'm supposed to do is communicate and communicate in a way that's effective and clear. Like this is what I'm trying to do. And so these concepts of these message houses, rule of threes, if you will, you know, what are the value propositions that are easily digestible? You know, it doesn't mm. take longer than 90 seconds to explain the kind of baseline of what you have and what you are, mm. uh, obviously varying based on products <laughs> and the complexity yeah. of the design, whatever. So I find all this fascinating, right? Because we we have such short attention spans and you've looked, you've probably seen this from YouTube videos, you know, where it says the amount of time you actually had somebody watching your videos was <laughs> approximately, oh, shit, I'm already, I'm already passing. Like, that was 30 minutes of solid content, man. Why didn't you watch last minute, three minutes and 47 seconds? But that hook is always what gets people in there. It's mm. what you've got. And, you know, these, the reason why I've structured things, especially with the, this podcast as conversations is that people actually want to come and sit by you. They actually want to understand what's going on. They want to see, join your flow of thought a lot of times because everybody talks at people, right? There's not mm. a lot of talking with people these days, it feels like. Yeah. And if businesses, I mean, again, I work for a very large enterprise and the way that we approach customers is a lot of times talking at them, you yeah. know, and it's, we're going to tell you what to believe. We're going to tell you what to do. And that kind of switch up and saying, well, what do you want to actually convey and how is this being perceived in there? And we pay lots of people, lots of money to go kind of do that market sampling, you know, like talk mm. to analysts and do that stuff. But for a lot of startups, you know, I talk to a lot of them. It's incredible to see that, you know, that light turn on, right. When you have yeah. that moment of like, ah, I, I, yeah, that's a great way of stating that. And I don't know yeah, if you found the exactly. satisfaction in doing that, but yeah, it's, it's amazing. Oh, absolutely. And then sometimes it's just the process can be useful. Um, there's a company I'm working with at the moment and um, uh, they they were really struggling to find exactly the best way to uh, present what they do. And um, uh, so I said, well, okay, well, uh, how about I just put everything you've told me in this 
two-hour call and several presentations you've sent to me. How about I distill all that into a, a simple just page of A4 and uh, we'll, we'll, you, uh, you can just take that. And if, if that's the right kind of direction, then we can start refining it from there. And I drafted that up and then they said, oh, thanks for this. We've suddenly realized that we have a lot of work to do to actually figure out what it is we want to be and where we want to go with it. And suddenly they uh, suddenly it clicked with them that that's what they needed to do. And yeah. so then so then they went away and spent time sorting that all out. But just the process of going through that, even though um, at that point we hadn't got a finished product was valuable in and of itself. Um, I had a similar experience this week. Um, uh, just talking through something um, uh, is just really valuable in helping uh, uh, really draw out what's interesting um, and what, what's actually useful to people. And yeah, it, it's that, that, that plain speaking, the, the uh, academics bug me because uh, in a way, and I, you know, um, uh, I know you're an academic. Yourself. <laughs> um, uh, so, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying academics are, are terrible people, but there's a, there's a form of academic communication where, which values a thousand words over a hundred when a hundred words might say exactly the same thing in a way that would be more accessible to more people and make the work more accessible and thus bring more value to the world from the work that is being done in these universities. It's very much an in-crowd kind of thing. It's like we have a very set world and um, it's down to uh, an external author to write a, a a popular science book about it five years later and suddenly make sense of it to the rest of everyone you know um it's like well why why not just write things in a way that people will understand um and sure back it up with all like the the technical detail and all of that um in your indices and things but actually have uh, a basic in your appendixes uh, but just have a uh, you know something that's actually readable and um so so yeah uh, i think there's a lot of work to be done with with that i'm i, I was editing a piece today by a very technical um it was a very technical piece for a technical audience but they wanted it to read more like um a, a human had, had written it rather than a robot and um you know and no no disrespect to the person who wrote it because they, they just think in a very technical way and that's perfectly fine that you know the world needs people like that but but the world also needs people who can then take that um, that uh, that that way of communicating and then translate it into kind of normal speak or whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You can bag on academics all you want to. I think you know, <laughs> the, the joy I've had kind of rejoining academia again. I, I mean, I talked with Naomi about this as well. You know, her kind of like, really, you guys think that way? <laughs> you know, and kind of rejoining these particular circles, right? And you see this, you know, because yeah, I'm in the market of simplifying everything mm. I want to do. I don't want to necessarily write 85,000 words on a con, you know, on a, on a subject matter as complex as marginalized communities, data trust and emerging tech. I mean, it's, it's heady enough already. Right. You know, I don't need to add, I don't, I mean, I do need to add more because that's what my degree is going to be on <laughs> but like that, that concept. I think we use, we use your bigger words, a kind of important gravitas, right. To this, this, <laughs> I'm going to talk about intersectionality now. Yeah. Yeah. So what you're saying is <laughs> <laughs> people from diverse backgrounds are inevitably going to collide in some sort of social way. And there needs to be an understanding between, you know, like all these things kind of wrap up material theory. We all want things. We're all going to do things to get things. And that's material theory and, and in a very distilled way, like all this stuff. So it, it's kind of mind bending, you know, to a certain extent, <laughs> but no, I love <laughs> I love the stories. I love the, the, love the applications there. And it's certainly, it's humbling to be able to step into that space, right? Like you're saying, there's always a need for people that can 
relay things in that format. My half brother goes to the University of Edinburgh. Uh, he's getting his PhD in economics there. He talks at a level that is well above mine, you know, and kudos to him. Evan's a brilliant, brilliant guy. I'm way down here going, hey, listen, <laughs> people need to be able to trust other people. You know, and we're going to use that. We're going to use these, you know, wonderful cell phones and, you know, hey, iPhone 12s and all that kind of fun stuff that's coming out. We're going to use that to exchange information. So how do we exchange information in a way that makes us trust each other? You know, especially mm. since we're all locked behind doors, you know, so that kind of different approach. So I, I appreciate well, it. I think, I think the whole um, thing that's happened over the last few years of, uh, you know, the famous uh, Michael Gove quote about people have, you know, had enough of experts and yeah. things. And um, uh, this kind of distrust of expertise these days and and the the elevation of uh, unqualified newspaper columnists um often to uh, the highest uh, seats of power in the land but um uh, i don't know what the... you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> but but um but but i think um a lot of that problem is with people not trusting experts is experts not being accessible and um, not maybe communicating their expertise in a way that is um, is understandable and relatable to a lot of people. And so people, um, uh, if it doesn't chime with their own personal experiences, they 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 reject that. And um, so so yeah, uh, I, th I think uh, I think there's, there's something to be said for the the power of simple communication there as well. Going back into history, it's like the, you know, the advent of the printing press, you know, Gutenberg <laughs> made, you know, he used the fancy word democratized, if you will, literature, democratized words in a way that was you know, understandable using the lingua franca, so to speak, and instead of using formal Latin, you know, by being <laughs> able to take what was exclusively stuck within the halls of well, academia, so to speak, and bringing it and being making it accessible to, to folks saying, you know, you can look through history and find those. And then when those revolutions happen, so it's almost like we're at another Gutenberg moment as well, <laughs> where we yeah. have all this information crowding in here and we have that kind of bifurcation of society into the haves and have nots. And, and in yeah. this case, the information elites and versus the common sense masses, if you will, <laughs> you know, and trying to bridge those gaps between, Hey, you come down to my level and I want to come up to yours, you know, we'll all pull seats up to the table and have that. So yeah. I know we're running out on end of time here. So, little plug for your company let's tell me what you got and where we can go find it and uh, we'll end on that sure yeah so big revolution is my company and uh so there are two sides to it uh, there's the kind of media and publishing side which has a newsletter so uh um, you can find that at bigrevolution.net slash newsletter that's six days a week uh, it distills uh the most important uh, tech news of and uh, media news of the last uh, 24 hours as i see it personally um into bullet points and then has uh, monday to friday some uh, analysis uh, so maybe a few hundred words analysis of a, a story i found interesting that day a, a long read from somewhere else you can read um a tweet of the day often as well that kind of thing um uh, we i also have uh, the youtube channel um you can find that just search for big revolution on uh, youtube there are a few big revolution channels but uh mine's i think the only active one and uh, has a nice br logo and look um, for the sfp I as well right <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, and um, uh, and yes, yeah, so that that launched at the start of October, and nice. uh, you know, so there's only a handful of videos on there, but uh, more coming all the time. Um, and the focus of that, I very uh, recently uh, decided on the exact focus of the um, of the channel um, after kind of starting it and just seeing where it went. Uh, it's about um, how tech companies communicate and how tech can help you communicate. 
Uh, then the other side of the company is uh, the consultancy I do with tech startups and with media companies. So that's a, a real mixture. It's just kind of stuff we've been talking about, uh, but it's also writing reports. So wrote a big uh, research report for a, um, uh, a big broadcaster. Um, yes. That was a collaboration with a, another colleague, uh, with, a, with a, like a, another person who works in the same space um, uh, earlier this year. Uh, lot, lots of stuff like that. So uh, a, a big range of stuff on the consultancy side. That's and, awesome. Uh, yeah. so bigrevolution.net big bigrevolution.net i encourage all of you guys i'll make sure that gets linked into all aspects of the modalities that this gets released in um martin sfp bright <laughs> mr bright if you will i appreciate your time today i appreciate the uh the random chance on a guy from linkedin to have a conversation <laughs> about this and uh yeah i look forward to uh, yeah i look forward to working with you um and doing these type of things in the future with you as well thank you for your time Thank you for listening to Elemental Collision. If you'd like to know more about Big Revolution, please go to bigrevolution.net. If you'd like to support Elemental Collision, please go to patreon.com slash elementalcollision. Thanks for listening.